allocation concealment, that's hiding which arm of a trial a patient is randomised to, is being questioned in an analysis published on the BMJ.com. David Torgerson, director of the York Trials Unit at the University of York and colleagues, have been looking at the way in which trials do this randomization and how they subsequently report it, and they've found both to be lacking. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and today I'm joined by David to discuss the article. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, David. Okay, thank you. So your article is calling out the problems of allocation concealment, that's you know effectively the the blinding in a randomised controlled trial. And you're not the first to look at this. Um, in 2005, there was a study that found that almost 20% of trials had problems with concealment, and a quarter of uh, trials published didn't adequately describe how they concealed uh, active and, and placebo arms in their trials. Now, you've decided to go back and look at this 10 years later. Why was that? It's because uh, I read, every week I read the trials that are published in the major journals, just mainly out of curiosity. And one of the things I look at is the, the, the quality of the allocation concealment. And notice that a lot of them, despite the fact they're published in consult compliant journals, still don't describe how they did it. And even when they do, in my view, it's inadequate. It's more than sort of 14 years later. That, that we looked at this, and really um, things haven't changed for the better. Have they changed at all? Are we looking at the same sort of picture here? Yes, with virtually the same proportion of um, trials that don't describe um, their allocation uh, clearly. So in the, in the previous review back in 2002, 20-25% didn't recall how they did the allocation, and we're finding a similar proportion, I think 22%. And 18% 14 years ago used inadequate methods, and we found uh, 19%, so virtually identical. So unfortunately, things haven't progressed as much as I certainly would have hoped um, looking at that study from 14 years ago. Mm. We know how many studies it looks like, um don't adequately blind, but do we know how much that is affecting the scientific base, um, which is sort of subverting everything down the line? Yes. Well, we've done some work looking at um, the possible effect of this in in meta-analyses. So last year we published a paper that looked at 12 meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials, and all these were published in the BMJ, Lancet, JAMA, so main, big, important journals. And when we we did a meta-analysis of the component studies of their age, and that that seems an odd thing to do because obviously the age between the treatment groups shouldn't differ because you randomised, but they did. So we had heterogeneity and imbalances in the meta-analyses that's in nine of 12 meta-analyses, which is alarming in that it's suggesting that a proportion of trials that where these meta-analyses are being used to drive clinical policy um, are are biased, essentially. In your article, uh, you've got a couple of case studies that I think really usefully 
illustrate the kind of thing you're talking about here. Um, and one of them is in which the envelopes um, are open to subvert the randomization. So can you take us through that? I, re I refer to a study that was under a surgical trial that was undertaken in the mid-1990s. And ironically, I actually worked on that trial briefly. We were using what we thought was the gold standard method of concealing allocation, which was to use opaque sealed envelopes and with the allocation of the surgical procedure in the, in the envelopes. And what the surgeon was supposed to do, once they'd got consent from the patient to take part in the study, was to open, take a box, and there'd be sequentially numbered envelopes in the box. And they should take the top envelope out, open the envelope, and then tell the patient what kind of um, surgery they would have scheduled to be performed. Now, there were five uh, different centers involved in that study. And out of those five centers, three centers, the surgeon or the person doing the recruitment of the patients was opening the envelopes in advance. And so they were scheduling patients to fit uh, what they wanted. So um, there was significant age, in dif age differences. So for the new form of surgery, patients, at, for example, at one site, one average 30, age 33, whilst patients in the um, receiving the control treatment were age 69. So it was clearly they were um, trying to make the new surgical technique seem superior by ensuring that younger, fitter patients were allocated to the surgery. So, um, so from my perspective, I was a junior researcher at that time, and I've since then have tried to avoid using envelopes as all possible, or if we have to use envelopes, because sometimes you may have to use envelopes, make sure that the person who opens the envelopes is completely independent of the person who may be enrolling the patient. Mm. Now, um, that was obviously because people wanted to to get the result uh, that that they ideally would like from a trial. Um, and you've got another example, though, where subversion was happening, um, and this time because uh, clinicians might have thought this was in the best interest of patients. Could you tell us about that one? Yes, I mean, there's, there's two, two examples we cite there. Um, one of them was a randomized trial of an enhanced rehabilitation program for patients with, uh, who had suffered a hip fracture. And there, the person that, that was using, wasn't using sealed envelopes, it was using telephone randomization, but the um, researcher was using, uh, had used a block size of six. And... The person who was scheduling patients, was recruiting the patients, had kept a record of the randomization so that they could then, they spotted the pattern that the randomizations repeated themselves after, after every six times. And so then they could, because the patients were being recruited from a ward where they were coming from their hip fracture, they, they could recruit several patients at the same time and so they would know they could predict the allocation. So, again, they felt the rehabilitation was in the best interest of the patient, so they were selecting patients for the intervention who were frailer and um, then the control group. So that, that basic study essentially failed because when they came to do the analysis, they found that the, those patients in the intervention group were significantly older and had had comorbidities and were failure than the patients in the control group. 
There is obviously pressure that people feel to push people into one arm or another. Do you think that sort of motivational side of this has been adequately looked at? I mean, I think it's a combination of probably inexperienced or people recruiting the patients who who don't fully realise that we we what we want to know is the answer from the trial. We don't really um, that answers a good thing, whether it's a bad answer and that the treatment doesn't work or it's a good answer the treatment does work we want to know the answer so i think it's just very tempting for a proportion of people to um if they can and i mean we're usually dealing with very clever people who are working in this area so they can often see work out the randomization patterns um if they're, if they're determined to do so and so it is it is difficult to to know what to do except for putting in procedures which make it very difficult or impossible to actually undertake this um, put, undertake this problem. And it's with the journals um, that you think the power lies to actually uh, make a difference here? Yes. Where the journals made a big difference was for prior registration of trials. So I remember must be at least 10 years ago, the British Medical Journal and the other major journals basically put a deadline out and said all randomised controlled trials published after this deadline will have to have registered the trial in advance, otherwise we'll just reject the study without looking at it. Before that, I think a proportion of trials registered their protocols before they started recruitment, and now I imagine it's close to 100%. I think because the randomization is actually so crucial, I think um, perhaps doing something like have the paragraph separated out so that the referee has to look at it and understand that or have a separate referee who only just looks at that process. And as we say in the paper, I think sealed, sealed opaque envelopes, I think the time has passed for them and they're so open to abuse. So I think with relatively few exceptions, using sealed opaque envelopes and using small block sizes, which I think of block sizes four or below, should be stopped in trials and they should should give advance notice that, say, from 2020, they won't publish trials that use sealed opaque envelopes or small block sizes. And then people will immediately change their practice to ensure that they don't don't use um, inferior techniques and if they use block randomization we also talk about a, a statistical test which is quite straightforward to do which can detect subversion either by a center or or overall if you use block randomization you've been listening to david torgerson talk about the importance of making sure that randomization is carried out properly you can read that article Allocation Concealment in Randomised Control Trials, Are We Getting Better? Now available on thebmj.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, You can also find our full back catalogue, that's hundreds of podcasts going back for years, all for free on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.